Welcome to Bike Talk, streaming in Southern California at KPFK, Western Massachusetts at Valley Free Radio, WMBR in Cambridge, and worldwide at biketalk.org. First up, Lindsay Sturman interviews parking reformer Tony Jordan. Welcome to Bike Talk. My name is Lindsay Sturman. We have Tony Jordan, who is the founder of the Parking Reform Network, and he has sort of touched the nerve of the zeitgeist where this awareness of parking minimums and parking requirements and its sort of catastrophic effects that those minimums have on cities. So, Tony, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you. It's great to be on here. So, so tell us how you came to be interested in the issue of parking reform. I got rid of my, I live in Portland, Oregon, and I got rid of my car in 2008. I had uh, one kid at the time. And then in 2010, I came across this book that was written in 2005 by Don Shu called The High Cost of Free Parking. And it was only in hardback. Um, I read it and it really opened my eyes to like thinking about how much parking, I realized how much parking costs, you know, tens of thousands of dollars per space, how much space it takes up, each, you know, parking space takes up, can take up the space of an efficiency apartment. And I really, I couldn't see things the same again. So I, I, I became kind of obsessed with this idea uh, of how much parking had, had shaped our cities. And I wanted to start sharing that news and, and talking to people about it. Since 2010, even um, I've seen just a building awareness of this from uh, media outlets like Fox, Washington Post, uh, and Adam Ruins Everything did an episode on this. Uh, I think uh, How To with John Oliver. Like you just see more and more mentions of parking in a critical sense. Like parking is actually, if you watch any movie, parking comes up. There's a weekend at Bernie's, the mob is building <laughs> parking lots. It's like, it's really already everywhere. But looking at it critically is something that um, Don Shoup kind of brought to the forefront. And and while he raised a lot of awareness in academic and planning circles, uh, there wasn't really any organizing, I thought, I could see going on. Um, Don will mention, you know, he says, you know, academics are, we work in wholesale, we put out these ideas and, and we, we share them, but we're not doing the retail work of being on the ground. And I, and I saw an opportunity here of avoiding the advocacy landscape of um, People need to not only know about this, but be actively organizing. And so I did organizing locally in Portland and then eventually founded the Parking Reform Network in order to kind of help people nationally to build momentum on this and have the resources they need to do parking reforms. Michael Manville at UCLA, who studies transportation and housing in this nexus that, you know, bikes and parking and housing, they're integrally um, related. And I said to him, I was like, you know, he explained this parking issue. And he's like, the reason you can't have affordable housing and you can't build housing is parking. And I said, Mike, you got to tell people this. Have you told people this? He's like, I'm not an activist. I'm an academic. <laughs> Like, well, I'm right. an activist, so maybe I should be talking about it. Parking policy as it is, is a hurdle to so many areas where there already is activism. I could say it's like a force multiplier for housing or transportation advocacy and, and climate advocacy, because in all those areas, there are very active communities fighting for affordable housing, fighting for safer bike lanes, better transit, you know, greenhouse gas emissions. But this kind of invisible thing out there, parking is stopping progress. You can't build a lot of affordable housing with parking minimums. You can't put in bike lanes and bus lanes if you have free parking taking up the streets. It's a great issue because it builds coalitions and it gets kind of to the core. And given that no one's been working on it, the progress we make on this is like it's not taking away from anyone else's advocacy. It's like a, almost a whole new space to work in. People who advocate for bike lanes and, you know, more mobility options and climate and affordable housing, it, that really is the triangle. And you see it on Twitter, housing, Twitter, climate, Twitter, and bike Twitter are, there's a Venn diagram overlap. When you talk about parking minimums and you talk about, I think it's just so hard for people because None, nobody wants to look for a parking space and nobody wants to sit in traffic. So I feel like Angelino's people who live in LA are just, you know, in a state of despair about the traffic. We don't want to go anywhere. But I think COVID opened our minds that what else we can do with those parking spaces and what happens when you slow the cars down. Are you, are you seeing that up in Portland? COVID kind of changed people's ideas of what the space could be used for, like uh, with the outdoor dining and like that definitely Prior, there were a few parklets here and there that was kind of a quirky thing to put dining out on the street or in your parking lot. 
And that really changed, I think, from the land use capacity, the, the idea. I, I think of this as like almost like a big circuit diagram or something. Like parking, parking is like the, the battery or the capacitor for traffic and our highways <laughs> and our roads are like the, the highways are like the high voltage transmission. And, and, you know, it's like all roads are just long driveways to parking. Really, that's all they are. As we increase the capacity of any one of these things, you know, like highways, the freeways, the parking, the car ownership and the dependency that brings, um, it all kind of feeds back into one another. Bigger roads need bigger capacitors, more parking garages, bigger parking garages. They're discharging traffic onto the streets. And so if you want to actually remove and reduce your traffic, you have to start cutting at these core issues. You have to stop you know, widening freeways. We have to stop investing in car dependent infrastructure, stop requiring as much parking and st start you know, repurposing it. In the short term, Angelinos and everyone else shouldn't be threatened by our work because there's so much parking that exists in Los Angeles, like 17% of the whole city is parking, right? Like that, you know, like you're always going to be able to find a place for your current car, right? Like it's just, how do we build forward? What do we want to see as we, as we move forward? Um, and we have to set our, our intentions and our policies in line with the future we want to see. I love that so much. And the data, when you, you use Dutch data and you look at what would it look like if a street were basically Ciclavia, where it was completely safe to say bike along, you know, a corridor, uh, the the amount of traffic that would get replaced really qu very quickly, because when you take the cars off for Ciclavia, the bikes are there within minutes. Um, mm -hmm. people, they say nature is healing. People just come out because it's our happiest form of transportation to bike. We will opt into biking because it's exercise, it's free, it's meditative, and it's joyful. <laughs> And that applies to nothing else. <laughs> I guess it may be walking, um, but you get farther on a bike. Um, so I think that, you know, when you start to build the housing without parking and you and you and you take those surface parking lots, which are just, you know, they're eyesores, they kill, they just tear at the fabric of the community, you know, the driveways that just break up the sidewalk and make it make you feel unsafe. And they're again, like an eyesore and they're depressing and there's horrible fumes coming out of it. I mean, when you really think about it, you can completely change a city when you eliminate the parking. Yes. When I first started on this work, the first groups I approached and talked to and made a coalition with were bicycle advocates, partly because I was riding a bike myself, but then I knew people in the community, but I also, to make those infrastructure improvements work, you need that density. So we obviously, you know, you can't build the housing. You can need, you need to reclaim the space. Parking policy and parking reform is amazing because it actually doesn't cost cities anything to do. <laughs> like you're, you know, it's very cheap and it usually actually makes money if you're managing your on-street parking or the current parking supply you have. So you can have money to, to actually improve the infrastructure. But I think when there are a lot of a lot of times, one of the things people will say is, you know, we can't start removing the parking requirements or we can't reform the parking until we have the bike lanes or the transit. And I think that what we need to recognize is every time someone builds a new building and we require parking in it and there's a driveway onto a street, that's going to impede turning that street into a car-free street in the future. That's going to, as you mentioned, the driveways, not only the driveway breaks at the sidewalk, but that's a, a danger point for uh, interaction between vehicles and humans on the street and whatever's between that that building and the where those cars want to drive and so i think like it, it those they're very tied together another great thing about parking reform is it involves bicycling and and bicycle advocacy is that it brings bicycle advocates into the land use advocacy sphere right like there's a connection there we we saw in portland here um you know bringing people from the bicycle advocacy group involved in our zoning reforms and vice versa people who are working on the land use recognize that we're in a coalition together and it brings very great you know, like it's just an amazing coalition building space. And we know that coalitions are what gets policy passed, whether it be zoning, transportation or climate advocacy. And I believe that in next week, there's going to be a gathering in L.A. Do you want to tell us about it? Yeah, um, we, you know, the Parking Reform Network is a small, scrappy startup type organization. Um, we do a lot with not a lot. And we're trying to increase the, the support we provide to people um, working on this issue and, and increase our, our awareness of our organization and the issue at hand. So we're having a, a fundraising party um, at, in, at your house. <laughs> and thank you very much. And it's going to, Don Shoup will be there, uh, Michael Manville, um, 
some people, elected officials potentially will be coming by. And it's, and one of the, I'll tell you, it sounds like a nerdy thing, like where I'm going to a parking reform party. Uh, we had, you know, there was a, but like at Yimby Town here in, in Portland in April, we had a happy hour for parking reform and it was amazing. Like every, when you are at a party and everyone gets this topic, when you bring it up, when you bring up not only parking, but all of these issues were like in a normal setting, someone might, you know, roll their eyes or not want to talk about this. Everyone at this party, should be primed to talk about this topic. It's not all you'll talk about, but it's it's so it's so fun. And I'll tell you, everyone, the people who get this topic at this point in time, they're thoughtful activist type people. And like it's 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 just it's such a nice environment to be in. And it, it's cool. So I think like people who come to this will have a, a fantastic time and hopefully we'll provide some more resources for us to do our work from this and 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 get some great photos. <laughs> Tony, thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk, and we can't wait for the celebration. And I should say that uh, California just passed massive parking right. legislation, AB twenty seven. Yeah. It's it's uh, California did that, or a few months before that, Oregon passed some statewide rules. Um, at least seven North American cities in the last year have completely eliminated their parking man mandates. Um, Washington State is about to introduce some legislation to do something similar in California. It's you happening. Feel it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk. Absolutely. Thank you. You're still listening to Bike Talk. Now, co-host Jeanette Porter talks with California Senator Anthony Portentino about discovering biking and his new law requiring cities and counties to include bicycle and pedestrian plans, multimodal networks, and traffic calming for any urbanized area. This week on Bike Talk, we talked to California Senator Anthony Portentino about California's plan for the future bill that was recently signed and his recent conversion into cycling. I'm Tanette Powell. I'm extremely passionate about all things related to environmental justice and healthier communities. Senator Porrentino, welcome to Bike Talk. Thanks, Tanette. Really great to be here. Thank you. Let's talk about your recent conversion to cycling. How did you get into biking? Well, two years ago, I was 314 pounds. And then I had the bariatric surgery. Lo and behold, I had a 40-year-old 10-speed sitting in my garage in Sacramento, and we were on lockdown. And so the Friday after Thanksgiving, I got on the bike. And uh, after sitting on a couch for four decades eating ruffles, I got on a bike and I started riding along the river in Sacramento. And number one, it was beautiful because it was, you know, the fall and it was flat and um, you know, the river was picturesque. And number two, because it was flat, it was easy. And so, you know, lo and behold, five miles became 10 miles, which became 12 miles. And then all of a sudden, a couple months later, I was up to 30 miles. And having that flat terrain to start really helped me. I think had I started uh, in the hills on day one, I probably would have quit because I wouldn't have been able to get home. But after, you know, several months of riding uh, on the flats, I was, you know, got some some muscle and now I ride every day and I try to ride uh, two and a half hours a day. How would you say that biking has changed your perspective on active transportation? I've always been a supporter of mass transit, of the goal line through the San Gabriel Valley, you know, bike lanes back when I was on the city council and lowering speed limits. I always had a had a bent for that. But being on the ground sort of firsthand and, you know, the first time I rode through like four or five different cities in the San Gabriel Valley and I saw that some cities had really good bike lane, you know, very, you know, demonstrative, purposeful bike lanes and bike ways and others didn't, um, you know, it started to to really see the inequities of, of uh, you know, how some cities are getting it and some cities don't. Um, the intersection right by my house was probably the most dangerous to navigate. And so, you know, light synchronization and, and you know, how you can navigate safely in, in urban areas, um, you know, there's nothing like it when you're doing it every day. And the first time I went through like the streets of LA down into, into real urban areas and almost getting clipped by, you know, trucks and 18 wheelers and sharing the road, um, you know, again, it was an eye-opening experience of, of you know, how we have to share these spaces and make it safer for pedestrians and bikers as more and more people, you know, give up their cars and more and more people use active transportation. We as 
policymakers and leaders need to be in tune with that. And and becoming one of those people gave me a, a very unique perspective. I guess related to that, let's talk about the plan for the future, Bill. I started having conversations with Streets for All on some planning issues. And then I also wanted to do something on bike plans. Some cities, again, like I said before, some cities do it better than others. And I wanted to have the state sort of lay out a plan that made sense. And so I talked to uh, Dorothy Wong in Altadena, who's a major uh, bike uh, advocate and streets for all. And, you know, many cities have these plans. They don't implement the plans. And so we wanted to put some teeth behind the implementation, but we also wanted to use data and research and best practices and sort of modern approaches um, and hold cities accountable to, to implement these plans. So they've got, you know, two years from adoption to start implementation and they've got to complete it within 25 years and they have to use, you know, real stats and, and information to, to know where the dangerous spots are and they need to prioritize fixing those spots. How do we get more leaders to start biking? Well, I've been inviting a lot to go on bike rides. Um, so, you know, that's something that I try to do and, and encourage. And, you know, it's easy to see in me, you know, going from, you know, 314 pounds to 155 pounds, it's obvious that something happened. And so people ask me all the time, how is it that you get to do it? And I also share that the more I ride, the more I can eat. I don't feel as guilty over that nine o'clock snack if I know I'm, I'm going out on a 25 mile bike ride in the morning. And so I think we just need to, to share our personal experiences, which is why I'm, I'm happy to be here and, and talk about it. And, you know, the advocates are doing a great job too. I mean, there's so many, you know, active transportation organizations. Every city has a, as a walk bike group and, you know, the, the word is spreading and, you know, inviting politicians and opinion makers to, to community rides. I've done a few community rides. I think we just need to continue to, to share that perspective, you know, in a, in a strange way, the pandemic has highlighted a lot of these issues too. You know, more and more people are working from home, more and more people are, are walking, uh, more and more people are biking. And I think it's changing the nature and the face of of what it means to commute, you know, making more, you know, bike friendly places. Uh, you know, one of my staffers, go, God bless her heart, went out and bought a bicycle and a week later it got stolen because, you know, there weren't, you know, efficient lockers to, to lock it up. Uh, you know, we have to continue to to tell those stories and share that perspective and invite more people to be part of the the road. How do you feel about California's overall momentum um, in environmental legislation? Well, I think California, you know, I think the momentum is strong in urban environments in particular. There's a focus on on making our urban bikeways better and, and dedicated bike lanes. And I think you're going to continue to see improvements. You know, hopefully that's done from a preventative perspective versus a reactive perspective. You know, we don't want tragedy to drive the conversation. We want, you know, prudence to drive the conversation. You're seeing more and more of an activist base, you know, demand from elected officials that they they respond to these issues. And I think, you know, we are to a certain extent, we are. Now, I know that there was one bill, 457, that would have paid um, a tax break uh, to carless families that was vetoed. Do you think it'll be reintroduced? You know, I, it was an important conversation to, to inject. Again, Streets for All came to me with the idea, you know, you know, we we try to respect, you know, middle working class people in California. We try to make, you know, as a, as policymakers, we want it to be uh, easy for people to go to work and easy for people to put food on their 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 table. Um, and so we've done a lot of economic relief around, you know, small businesses, around uh, rent relief, around you know the high gas prices, um, but we weren't really looking at the the car piece of that we were looking at the cost of gas but not whether we should reward folks for taking public transportation or alternative transportation or walking to work or and so the idea was to have that be part of the conversation if you give up your car if you go car free should the state reward you i think the answer is yes and so that was the genesis for the bill. And obviously, with anything, you start big and you try to get it to a place where you can get a signature. Um, and so that's why we sort of pared it down and put some means test on it and made it uh, you know, smaller, hoping to get a signature. Um, 
I'm going to bring back the bill next year. I, you know, I think it's important for the conversation to continue um, and work through the budget process, you know, meet with the administration on it to talk about how significant um, of a statement it is. You know, clearly that there's a family out there that that doesn't use a car to get to work. And should they be should they benefit from that? And, and again, I think the answer is yes. It's better for the environment and it's, it's, you know, one less car on the road and one, one more walker to work is better than, than the opposite. Right. Absolutely. And I've heard you mention um, streets for all a couple of times in our conversation. Um, What does that look like? What has that partnership been like for you to work with that organization? Well, it's been great. You know, we we started out with a disagreement on a bill, which is why they came to to hold me to task. And I remember my staff going, you sure you want to take this meeting? They're going to yell at you. And I go, that's okay. You know, I'm a firm believer in out of the conversation, you get better policy. You know, it's not about 100% agreement. It's about, you know, having a conversation with each other. And, you know, I had uh, concerns over a, a parking minimum bill because I didn't think it was going to lead to the affordable housing that we needed in California and in LA. And I wanted some accountability metrics on it. And so Streets for All came to me and said, all right, Portentino, you know, you didn't like A, but what's your B? And they challenged me to to come up with with an alternative, which I ultimately did, which then the governor signed into law um, as far as the parking minimum bill. And that was the, that was the, 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 the bill adopted the framework that I worked out with, with Streets for All. So out of that conversation, we morphed into a, a further partnership. I think a mutual respect was developed. They, they saw me as a thoughtful legislator and I saw them as thoughtful advocates. And so I think we're going to continue to work together. And I, you know, I try to meet with everybody. Um, you know, I try to talk to everybody. I think that's what's missing in public policy is, you know, we talk over, we talk past, we, we project onto other people, bad motives. We, you know, we don't sit back and say, all right, where are we trying to go and how do we get there and who's got the best idea? It sounds like, you know, collaboration can be messy, right? We can come from many different places, but I think that idea of wanting healthier communities is something that Streets for All, they shared that vision with you and you're able to work toward that. Right. And so I guess my final question for you is really just what's next? There's definitely a relationship between, you know, making California more livable, more friendly from a from a ground level perspective from a human perspective how we interact in public spaces you know lends itself to to having a better public health and so i think there's a relationship between the two things so i'm going to work on education mental health and active transportation policies with the two years left i have in the senate and hopefully next year we can come back and talk about some of those things uh, and you know we'll keep pushing good policy thank you so much for your time senator we appreciate you. Thanks to that. Be well. Next, Andy Baino asked why there's no push for national bike infrastructure like there is for EV charging networks in a tweet that went viral. Andy Baino, you're a documentarian, is that it? Uh, yes, I make up true stories. Uh, and sometimes I tell other people's true stories. Um, I've been in the infrastructure business for over 20 years, but my my... I don't know, some people might call it a sickness that I so enjoy uh, studying and talking about how it is that human beings get around from here to there. But I do love to learn about how we get around and how we interact with our environment. Um, And I also like happy, smiley people. So I want people to love the places where they are. So I'm looking for ways to help people find happy, healthy places. And to that end, you went to your happy space, which is Twitter. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. I, so last week I've been active on Twitter for, for many years. Um, and there's a pretty strong, I'm sure, you know, there's a pretty strong community of bicycling advocates. And I would put myself in that camp of walk advocate, bike advocate. Uh, but I'm also a car owner every once in a while I'll tweet something that, takes off and gets quite a bit of attention. And when I say quite a bit though, I'm talking like maybe it's uh, in the hundreds of likes or something like that uh, in a couple dozens of retweets. But last weekend, or I guess late in the week, last week, I read an article about 
a coming plan for a national charging network in the United States. I've been talking with some friends who are in the EV industry about what's involved in developing EVs. And so I'm, I'm seeing this uh, idea for a national charging network. My next thought was, huh, if only there was such a push towards bicycles to have a bicycle network, if that same kind of priority was given towards the fundamental modes of transport, walking and bicycling. And so I just, I tweeted 5% of people ride bicycles, so we can't do anything for them. And then 5% of people drive electric cars. So we're planning a national charging network over just that weekend. It got 1.1 million impressions on Twitter, which is bonkers. I mean, for me, I've met like, who am I? I just have a very modest following uh, on, on Twitter. What is impressions? Is that likes? Impressions is how many times it gets in front of somebody on Twitter. So that's not pure likes and retweets. It's just simply the number of number of times it goes through somebody's feed or, or appears in front of somebody. It includes the likes and the retweets and things like that. So, well, now it's got 3000 retweets and 19,000 likes, wow. um, which again, like if you're a celebrity or you're, you run a, a news show, maybe you get something like that from time to time. It, what was more fascinating to me was not just that people were liking it and sharing it, but was the comments that were appearing underneath. So I checked this morning and there were over 600 comments, many of them my own because I was engaging with people. People were jumping in the comments either saying things like, yeah, there's a war on cars. We need to get rid of cars. All cars are bad. Way to go. And another type of reaction was, what are you doing? This We're supposed to be moving uh, moving away from gas powered to electric. Like, Let's convert the fleet of, of vehicles that are, that are out there in the US, especially. And then you had quite a few comments of people who jump in and say things like that's stupid, um, which I've written about a few times recently. Just I don't know if you're familiar with the gaming culture, but non-player character or NPC, is, it's just a programmed type of response. And once you see it a few places, you'll, you'll start seeing it everywhere. I, it's, I saw your article. I, you blog. Yes, I guess about 20 years now. Most of the time about things dealing with the urban environment. I love marketing and advertising, but really the reason why I love marketing and advertising is I'm fascinated by how our silly heads work. Your non-player character. Or NPC for short. It's not a good guy or a bad guy. It's just a character. And so if you're playing a video game where you're a knight a few hundred years ago and you walk into the blacksmith shop, the non-player character is the blacksmith. And the blacksmith is going to say to you, I have these types of swords. And and they're going to tell you about the prices. No matter what you do as the player, that blacksmith is going to stick to their script. They're going to say things like, well, this blade is heavier. I don't know if it's going to be good for you. Or this blade costs this many pieces of silver. You could say to the blacksmith, I wear a pink hat on Tuesdays. What do you wear? And the blacksmith is going to bring it back to the sword. Or you could say things like, I sure am thirsty. And maybe that blacksmith is going to say, if you turn the shield upside down, you can fill it with water. But everything goes back to their role. And so the way that works in social media is no matter what you say about a hot topic, there will be people who have this behavior of a pre-programmed script or they're going to recite things no matter what you say. And, and, so, and that was filling up the comments in some ways to my delight. Other people were pulling their hair out over it. And what was the blacksmith in this scenario? This one is a good example, I think, because many people say it in slightly different variations. And that is Bike infrastructure is just subsidizing the dangerous behavior of a very small, very privileged minority. I just read verbatim the actual tweet. That came up a lot from different people where they would say, this is a tiny fraction of very privileged minority of people we're subsidizing. So my res- so I, could, I have choices when I see a, a tweet like that, that I interpret as this is, this is NPC behavior. This is a script. This is not somebody looking for a conversation. They're not open-minded, they're reciting their prompts. I responded by saying, since, since they're drawing this, this issue up of subsidizing dangerous bicycling, like subsidizing this tiny fraction of people, I said, the percentage of humans privileged with the ability to walk or bike 
is closer to 100 than zero. And the percentage of Twitter accounts that understand motoring subsidies is closer to zero than 100. So I, I'm taking their words and then just making a completely new recipe out of, out of their ingredients, making something totally different. And it infuriates so, an NPC. They'll just go back to the script and say the same kind of thing. No, no, no. This is subsidizing bicycling. Yes, I understand what you're saying. And I'm going to say something different. So you're not really talking to them, though. No, exactly. I'm talking to people who are coming into the conversation drawn in either by the hype of EVs or the love of bicycle infrastructure, the love of freedom of mobility, um, or some other reason. And people who are engaging in the, the comments in, in productive ways, which there was plenty of that. There's, there still is plenty of that going on. So I think you just said hype of EVs. And then there's the people who are fighting for EVs because they're concerned about what's happening to the world. And, and you understand that. I do. And in fact, a lot of my work involves advanced technology with transportation. I've done quite a bit of work involving autonomous vehicle technology and apps that connect different forms of transport to give people options so that in a single platform, they could access all the things. I use that word hype purposefully because it, it makes people sit up straight. If infrastructure is planned and designed for everybody to drive, whether that's a gas-powered car or an electric vehicle, if it's designed for all of us to drive as the default, then everyone's going to drive as a default or right. they're going to ask somebody for a ride. But if you think, well, wait a second, half of all the car trips in the United States are just a couple miles, like less than three miles, half, and something like a quarter or only one mile. So you're talking five, 10, 15 minute, 20 minute bicycle rides. And that's not even an e-bike. Like just if you think about half the trips we do are that short, then you're looking at a national planning and national charging network. You take that same energy and apply it to bicycle infrastructure we would have some phenomenal shifts in modes. If your goal with EVs truly is about the environmental impacts or about carbon footprint, if you could dramatically shift travel behavior out of a car of any type into a, or onto a bicycle, I mean, that's groundbreaking. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Part of this is about the framing of the debate. Is it internal combustion versus electric cars? Is that the whole debate or is there room for bikes in this debate? There is a quote I love from an author. Michael Margolis is his name. He says, if you want to learn about a culture, listen to their stories. If you want to change a culture, tell new stories. I love that because, and I do my best to apply it to built environment storytelling. This tweet that went large is one example of that. Like there's, or the, and especially the comments under it. The conversation that we've been involved in, the story that we're part of as a bicycling advocate for you and I to be able to choose if we want to ride a bicycle as transportation. The debate has constantly been, well, everybody's driving, so I get where can we fit in bike lanes? And then there's, there's little debates about how wide is the lane? Do you put flex posts in there? Do you put concrete? Do you physically separate? All those kinds of little details. What I like to do is rather than just always being on the defensive, just tell a completely different story to challenge people to think about these problems differently so that we can explore different options. And in this case, it's why can't we push bikes or e-bikes the way that we're pushing EVs? Very well-meaning environmentalists will say, let's imagine a better world where all of the cars that are driving around, instead of polluting the air, we're clean. And so you can see if you're just imagining that before and after of dirty car versus clean car. Yes, that's true. Why, why on earth would somebody dare say, well, hang on a second. Let's not, let's talk about something different, but it just so happens being stuck in a car, like having that as your only option for travel, even for these trips, they're just a mile long. That is bad for our mental health. It's bad for our physical health. And it's the most dangerous place to be. Like every single year, 30 to 40,000 Americans are killed in car crashes. What I'm looking to do is say, all right, if we know that it's awful 
to force us all to get into a car for a bunch of different reasons. How do we change behavior? Well, we're not going to change behavior just by wagging our fingers at each other and saying, you really should drive less because we all still have errands to run. So what's the alternative? One alternative is we design our environments the way we want to be. We design it so that it is healthy for our minds, healthy for our bodies, and it it ends up being an area that is a delightful place to ride a bicycle, just where you use a bicycle as a tool. It's not that you love your bike. You just use it because it's super convenient to get around for these short trips. Is it possible to just say, okay, here's somewhat specifically what we need? Everybody is familiar. It's almost a pop culture thing in the US to just know that Copenhagen is delightful for riding bikes for whatever reasons a lot of people don't know. If I start by saying, Copenhagen wasn't always Copenhagen. Copenhagen, when I was just born and young, looked like anywhere USA. There were cars all over the place. Everybody drove all the time for everything. So if you do an immediate before and after of just a few decades ago in Copenhagen versus now, well, something happened. So let's start there and say, what does it look like here? What have they done? What can we copy paste? Here we are in 2022, where most cities and states can't afford to maintain what they already have, let alone expand. They should never be widening roads for cars until, at a minimum, they have the budget to maintain all of this infrastructure that's already out in place. There's so much public right-of-way that is already paved and maintained in the public realm Bicycling infrastructure is not something where you have to now go door to door and say, hey, uh, ma'am, I'm sorry, but your family's going to have to give up that old tree in the front yard. We're going to widen the road in front of you so that we can fit in some bicyclists. It's not that. It's you have all this infrastructure, repurpose it so that people can ride their bikes in this existing right of way. Thank you, Andy Baino. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to chat. We'll see you back on bike Twitter. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, Bike Talk co-host and Pedal People co-founder Ruthie Woodring on whether pedal people who haul loads by bike should use e-bikes. Hi, Ruthie. Hi, Nick. Thanks for inviting me on again. Always a pleasure, as they say. You're in Kentucky. You don't call it bi-coastal. I don't know what you would call it. <laughs> this is my, my Appalachian, my Kentucky home. I'm here with family where I come often via bus, train, bike, any which way I can get here from Massachusetts. The ways you get around are always very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I never know myself how it's going to be next. Um, you're one of the founders of Pedal People, the trash collection. I don't know, do you call it trash collection? Um, yeah, Alex Jarrett and I started that in 2002. We call it human-powered hauling and delivery service. Okay. Trash is the most reliable thing there is to deliver by bike in, in Northampton, it seems. Hmm. It doesn't stop. You always see pedal people around. How many are there in Northampton? I think there's 25 collective members right now. Yeah, there's probably at least 10 people out on any given day doing trash and recycling routes or yard care routes or odd delivery, odd job delivery routes, mostly the trash and the recycling. How much is each person hauling? Well, the trailers are not supposed to have more than 300 pounds on them, but I so at one of the transfer centers, we go across the scale. And uh, one of my coworkers weighed in at 840 pounds. That includes wow. the weight of the rider, the bike, and the trailer, which that's maybe 300. So they had 540 pounds of stuff on them. And you don't use e-bikes. Well, it's really variable. So a couple of years ago, pedal people approved, we changed our bylaws to approve trialing and e-bike. So most of the, the bikes that people ride are their own bikes. Uh, like ideally they would have them because they already ride a bike to commute or go where they need to go. We have that one collectively owned e-bike, but it was a really big decision to, to try it as it is. We, um, we didn't, we changed our bylaws to approve it for 2021 and 2022, not for infinity. And so we have to like, I think renew that we want to keep on using it or, 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 uh, or continue the discussion around e-bikes within the collective. Um, but yeah, there's some, we have a diversity of views on it. Um, and I kind of, I go both ways. Um, my, my, the thing I think most about e-bikes that floats to the top of all my pot of thoughts is that 
the point of e-bikes is to do more faster. If you're coming from only doing things with human power, if you're coming from a perspective of doing things with motorized vehicles then the point of e-bikes, it's very different and a great change. Yeah. So it's, it's really complicated for us, the different ways that it can affect our business and me personally. Maybe I'll just start with how I feel about it and I experience it personally. So the e-bike that Pedal People has, people can check it out. It spends a lot of days not checked out by anybody, partly because it's in a place where you have to go, like it's in a garage that we rent where you have to go there and check it out. So you have to get in and out of the garage as compared to your own bike, which is probably where you live. So there's that little inconvenience factor. I used it a lot in August, actually, when pedal people was uh, struggling to cover routes because people were sick or on vacation or had deaths in the family or whatever. So, and I was doing like double routes. And so it helped me do a lot of additional work without breaking my body down um, and just get the pickups covered. So that was a situation where I wanted to do more work faster. (laughs) I definitely did. But when I ride the e-bike, I remember the first time I rode an e-bike, it was a kit that I put on my friend Paige's bike. And so then I installed the, the, this mid-drive kit and then I got on her bike and started to ride. And the way the bike took off outside of my control was such a foreign feeling, um, especially as someone who doesn't drive and hasn't driven in decades. Just like the idea of pushing a button in your body, swir- careening forward was just like, whoa, I just felt really out of control and out of tune with my body and space as I knew it. And how I like to pass through space. Um, so there was that initial feeling, which I knew I would get used to pretty quickly. We did human beings do that. Um, so the thing when I ride an e-bike, I don't feel as in tune with myself and my movements. I should clarify the e-bike we have for pedal people. There's no throttle on it. It's just an assist. Um, so you definitely have to pedal. You can pedal as hard as you want, but it's not gonna it's not gonna move you at all unless you're pedaling. Uh, so, but still it, um, so what was I going to say with that? So when I'm using it for pedal people, it's really fascinating to me how I think about my routes differently. I think about my movements around town. I think about the order in which I'm going to do my route based on hills or the heaviness of the customer's trash or the geographical order, because with the e-bike, I'm not thinking about doing things as efficiently as possible. I feel like I can waste energy because it's not my energy. <laughs> it's not going to wear down my body. Hmm. <laughs> you know, the, the effects are externalized or whatever. Um, yeah. So that's been really fascinating to me how easy it is to slip into that when you're depending on a, on a motor motorized vehicle. Uh, yeah, I guess the whole point of pedal people is you're not doing things as quickly as possible. That's not the point of pedal people. Yeah, like we started Pedal People because we like to ride bikes and we were trying to make a bike-based business. Like some people be like, well, why don't you get electric vehicles or electric garbage trucks? They're like, no, 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 that's not the point. We're trying to find a way to make a living on bikes. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, we do want to make a living doing it. And the cost of rent and housing in Northampton is making it difficult for some of my coworkers to be able to make a living doing pedal people. An e-bike will allow you to do more faster. The rent costs more and more. People have student debt. So yeah, people have all kinds of economic pressures. Me personally, like I'm 48, have been doing it for 20 years and have always lived collectively and not had a car, lived real simply. But I also came from a background where my parents owned their own home. Most of my siblings own their own home. So I had that sort of wealth kind of stability background. But so I'm in a place where we own our own home and I don't need to use an e-bike to be able to pay the rent. So I kind of feel like I'm sort of backing off on some of these things. You mean some people are struggling more? Maybe you can relate to their wanting to use an e-bike? Yeah, but I just am really wary of this social, cultural, economic creep because it's always more, we always want to do more. We always want to make more money. We always want to, you know, we fall into this trap of alleged 
productivity and you know, so-called efficiency. The more that technology enables you to do, the more you are then expected to do, like even more than you are helped. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then technology does all the work and then you sit home and be depressed and watch YouTube or watch, have screen time. So when they talk about, you know, efficiency, <laughs> oh God. Like <laughs> a cool example of what efficiency means to me in my life and my pedal people life. Yes. <laughs> It's all related to efficiency and, and cultural things. So we don't pay by the hour, we pay by the job. So if you have a big day, like say you work an eight hour day, that's a big day in federal people, and you pick up 50 customers, you're gonna make more per hour because you, know, you spend less time getting ready, getting dressed, getting the trailer. And then you also are likely to have more customers more densely clustered. Um, so you'll make more per hour for those eight hours. Say if you're going to work 16 hours a week, you could work, you know, eight hours one day and eight hours another day and have your 16 days and your hourly wage would be high. But for me, if I'm going to work 16 hours in a week, I would rather work like three hours every single day because I'm going to want to go for a bike ride every day. I'm going to have to do errands every day. So every day that I go out, I might as well haul a trailer around and do, you know, do a handful of pickups. So the e-bike discussion has been going on for years. I guess it was interesting. You mentioned at one point that the conversation is different depending on whether you're talking about e-bikes versus cars or e-bikes versus bikes. Exactly. Right. Because some people will say, well, think about all the other pickups. You could expand your service. You could pick up areas that you can't currently pick up if you were using an e-bike which is true. But then like in Northampton, there's plenty of people that still live in the densely settled neighborhoods where we already are, that we should be picking up with human power before we just get an e-bike and go pick up out in the suburbs. It's how I feel. And what's the prevailing, like how, how's your point of view doing? I feel like, I think the collective will probably eventually move towards using e-bikes more. Uh, another factor involved is that when e-bike discussions first started, it was kind of hard to get repair and maintenance on them. With a non-e-bike, it's easy to fix and parts can be scrapped off of another bike in a pinch usually. But with e-bikes, it breaks down and then you're more dependent on sources outside your control. Also, I feel like if we structure our routes around e-bikes, if the e-bike breaks down, you're not going to be able to finish that route with a normal bike. You'll have to use an e-bike for a route. Yeah. Right. So most pedal people work as part-time. So like my thoughts on an e-bike is if we're going to use them, we should still keep the routes kind of small so they can be used with either an e-bike or regular bike and not build up these big routes where you're going all over the place inefficiently just because you can with an e-bike. Well, thank you for breaking that down for me, Ruthie. And so you wrote a song. Uh, maybe you could share it with us. You sing You sing when you bike, right? <laughs> well, singing is something that's always been a challenge. For me. Like hearing a tune has been a challenge for me. But I find that if I write one song and then sing it for like two years, after two years of singing <laughs> it, I kind of have the tune. <laughs> That All seems right. about right. Yeah. I'll try this one. <laughs> These are the days, my friend, I think they'll never end. And when I die, I'll still be in my prime. I'll ride a mile or 10. I'll get that high and then I'll go to bed and do it all again. We slipped out like an egg on Turtle Island. We rolled, we crawled, we walked, and then we ran. Always trying to flee Earth's gravitation while she pulls us back with her invisible hand. These are the days, my friend, I think they'll never end. And when I die, I'll still be in my prime. I'll ride a mile or ten, I'll get that high, and then I'll go to bed and do it all again. Breaking free is something we aspire to. Running, jumping, someday we will fly. So much work to break the force that tugs us, squishing joints until we want to cry. But these mm. are the days, my friend, on wheels I'll glide on in, pedal hover just a few feet off the ground. The earth is pulling down, my tires are spinning round, 
Velocipedic symbiosis I have found. We cogitate, we levitate our being, but faster, slow, we slip back to the earth. Mother Magnet thinks we're iron filings, calling, falling to the place of birth. These are the days, my friend, I know one day they'll end, but until then, there's always something we can do. I might not run or walk, I might not stand or talk, but I think I can always wink at you. That is beautiful. Thank you. Thanks. These are the days I think they'll never end. I just want to go to bed and do it all again. That verse I'll often sing to myself when I'm biking and just feeling really excited about biking and hauling a load of trash up a hill. Well, thank you, Ruthie. Thanks for the brightening our day. (laughs) Thanks, Nick. Uh, Nice to talk to you. Enjoy Kentucky. Thanks. That was Bike Talk. Check us out at biketalk.org and get in touch. Support us if you like our work. We post every week, so check back next Tuesday. Have a good week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedal, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals and ride it all around, ride it all around.